welcome to Another Point of View, a program which seeks to provide our listeners with thoughtful, insightful commentary and opinion from a range of political perspectives on a broad array of important issues, local, regional, national, and global. I'm Michael Hauck, and I will be reading selected articles from authors expressing a more conservative or traditionalist point of view. And I'm Amy Edelman, and I will be reading selected articles from authors expressing a more liberal or progressive point of view. This week on Another Point of View, we focus on the controversy over creating a written uniform code of ethical conduct for the U.S. Supreme Court. In the recent past, several justices' actions have been called into question about whether they violated ethical standards. Should the U.S. Supreme Court establish a written and enforceable code of ethical conduct? Who would enforce it? The U.S. Senate? Attorney General? The Supreme Court is the only judicial body in the U.S. that is not governed by a code of ethical conduct. Progressives argue, yes, that every public office holder, from the highest to the lowest in stature, should be bound to a uniform code of ethics enforceable by an independent agency. Conservatives, on the other hand, argue that it is the sole responsibility of the Supreme Court to adopt and enforce any ethical standards, citing the constitutional principle of separation of powers to insulate the Supreme Court from interference. Get ready to hear both sides of this hotly contested issue here on Another Point of View. Our first article today comes from the National Review Online, published in November of this past year. For the court's critics, it's never truly been about ethics. The Supreme Court's publication of a code of conduct is a thankless task, never mind that it allows everyone to view the court's ethics obligations in one place or that the justices adopted it unanimously. I cannot improve on Dan Laughlin's analysis of the code's adoption, which he described as doing, quote, something you think is right when it's being demanded by the wrong people for the wrong reasons as part of a campaign to accomplish the wrong ends, close quote. There was never any reason to believe that taking this step would satisfy Senate Democrats and their liberal dark money backers. Their campaign has never really been about ethics, but rather intimidating a court that it despises for being faithful to the Constitution. Eric Levitz said the quiet part out loud in New York Magazine back in May. Quote, Public confidence in the independence of a reactionary and power-hungry court surely is not desirable from a progressive point of view. The more fragile their perceived legitimacy, the more reluctant they may be to put conservative dogma above majority opinion. It is therefore in the interest of the progressive movement to undermine the court's legitimacy. Close quote. The type of pseudo-ethical expose we have recently seen aimed at the most conservative justices was to Levitz an exercise in which, quote, the end goal isn't to secure ethics reforms that will render the Supreme Court less vulnerable to perceptions of corruption. The point is, or at least should be, to promote the perception of judicial corruption. There are, of course, hazards to the delegitimization of the Supreme Court. 
weakening its authority and thus judicial review, seems preferable to acquiescing to right-wing minority rule, close quote. So the reaction of the left's court watchers to the issuance of an ethics code should be no surprise. There are Here are some examples. The Supreme Court's new ethics code is a joke. The Supreme Court justices said they published a code to put to rest the misunderstanding that they regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. In other words, this is a PR tactic aimed at getting the public to stop bothering John Roberts. Steve Laddick more explicitly moved the goalposts, as if the enactment of an ethics code were never the issue. Quote, For me, the issue has never been the court's failure to enact a formal ethics code. It's the extent to which there is no means by which we can have any confidence that whatever rules apply to the justices are actually being followed. Today doesn't move that needle at all. Close quote. Predictably, the response to the court's ethics code among Senate Democrats, starting with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and head conspiracy theorist Sheldon Whitehouse, is dissatisfaction. Their common theme being that the rules are missing an enforcement mechanism. This is a refrain echoing any number of dark money groups, including Demand Justice, the Alliance for Justice, Fix the Court, Take Back the Court, Accountable U.S., Stand Up America, and the Revolving Door Project. By enforcement mechanism, these critics mean that they won't be satisfied until Congress is overseeing the Supreme Court, an intrusion into a coordinate branch of government that would be considered unacceptable, not to mention unconstitutional, if another branch were to try to do the same to members of Congress. Then again, given their track record on the law, is their opportunistic campaign to transform ethics into an ideological wrecking ball a surprise? Over to you now, Amy. Thanks, Mike. This article is from Boston University. Is a toothless scoutist ethics code better than no code at all? November 17th, 2023 by Doug Most. Chances are you've never heard of Samuel Chase, but more than 200 years after he died in 1811, his name is suddenly relevant. To this day, Chase is the only United States Supreme Court justice ever impeached. After his angry and bitter partisan rhetoric caused President Thomas Jefferson to try to remove him from the bench. Chase argued that he was being pushed out for his political beliefs, and after the House of Representatives voted to impeach him, his attorney managed to convince enough senators to side with Chase that he was acquitted on March 1st, 1805. Why does Chase's story matter today? For the first time in history, the Supreme Court this week published a formal code of conduct in the aftermath of criticisms against several justices for failing to disclose potential conflicts of interest or financial matters that some say raise questions about their ability to be impartial on cases before the court. However, the code contains almost no new rules and instead simply outlines the guidelines and principles 
justices have always been expected to follow. The Code's introduction acknowledges this. For the most part, these rules and principles are not new, adding, the absence of a code has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the justices of this court, unlike all other jurists in the country, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethical rules. The court said it hoped the code will dispel that misunderstanding. Reaction to the code was swift, with many stoutest followers calling it a joke and toothless. BU Today first spoke with Jack Bierman, a BU School of Law professor of law, and Philip S. Beck professor a year ago about whether it was time for the court to have an ethics code. So we went back to him this week to talk about the latest news. This interview has been edited and condensed for clarity. Q&A with Jack Beekman. BU Today. Does this new scoutist code of conduct policy have any real teeth to it? Or is it just an attempt to placate critics who say the justices have acted without any oversight for too long? Bierman. The code has no enforcement mechanism, not even a mechanism for filing complaints. The assumption must be that litigants will continue to file motions to disqualify a justice from hearing a case and the justice himself or herself will decide whether to step aside. It's not clear what happens when misconduct is alleged after the fact. For example, after a case has already been decided, and then it's discovered that a justice arguably ought to have stepped aside. It looks like window dressing to me. Perhaps an attempt to placate critics. It might also have a better motivation. The chief justices may have pushed for this to remind some of his colleagues that they are subject to ethical constraints and they ought to be thinking about this before they accept gifts from people who are interested in the cases that come before the court. Could the issue have been handled better by Chief Justice Roberts? It might have been better if the court would have decided that a justice refusal to step aside from a case when asked would be reviewed by the entire court. That would be a major change to the court's dynamic. I'm sure that the court is extremely reluctant to take a step like that. So then, does the code of conduct go far enough in holding a justice accountable, or are there other things you wish were included but were not? I wish they had made a clear statement on gifts. The statement incorporated by reference the Judicial Conference Regulations on Gifts, which is a step in the right direction, but it would have been better if the court itself had spelled out the rules concerning gifts. Further, while the regulations prohibit the justice from accepting gifts from persons whose interests may be affected by the court's actions, the regulations allow the justices to accept gifts from friends and leaves it to the justices themselves to determine whether they ought not accept a gift from a friend whose interests are likely to be affected by the court's decisions. What would you have done regarding gifts? My suggestion is they set a ban on gifts and loans from non-family members over a certain value, perhaps 500, and that regardless, they require justices to disclose to the public all gifts and loans not from family members. Public confidence in the Supreme Court is too important to allow justices to accept undisclosed gifts from people who are interested in the court's businesses or have cases in the courts. 
This isn't a radical idea. It's Ethics 101. Is the code a direct rebuke of Claris Thomas, the justice who has faced the most criticism? It's difficult to say that this is directed at Justice Thomas. He did join his colleagues in adopting the statement. Other justices have been accused of inappropriate conduct, so I would say the statement is directed at the court as a whole, and more importantly, at the public to attempt to restore public confidence in the court. Most people will hear about the headline, but not drill down into the statement and see that it is toothless and vague on important matters. I would add that in my view, the most serious threat to public confidence in the court is only tangentially related to the matters covered in the announced ethical rules. The partisan behavior of the justices have become crystal clear in the eyes of the public in recent years. And because the court does not represent the mainstream of American politics and social viewpoints, this behavior has become a major issue for many people. The court has always been a partisan institution, but it seems to be more so today. And again, when the court's decisions are contrary to the views and expectations of the public, this behavior undercuts confidence in the court's integrity. Another issue that was overlooked is when justices should recuse themselves from a case based on conflict. It was always implicit to me, if a case presents conflict of interest, a justice would talk about it and recuse themselves. It's evidence of how gently the justices wanted to tread on this. Traditionally, it's up to each individual justice to recuse themselves, but they don't mention recusal as a remedy. They don't want to make it a directive, because then people could say they should have recused themselves and did not. So it sounds like you agree with those describing the code as essentially toothless. It is toothless. I know some people say if they adopt a totally toothless one, it's better if you don't do it at all. I'm not necessarily sure I agree with that. The Chief Justice's does seem concerned the public is losing confidence in the court, but it is a pretty toothless code. The issue with gifts is that they don't spell anything out. Bribery can take many forms. They could have spelled it out better with a higher standard of disclosure. All gifts and loans from non-family members ought to be disclosed, in my opinion. That's been the problem. So is there a better remedy? I think the only real remedy is impeachment. Federal judge have been impeached, but today the standard is so much lower. Congress's only real weapon is impeachment. And now back to you, Mike. Thank you, Amy. This next article comes from the Heritage Foundation, published in May of last year. Democrats' bills are about Supreme Court harassment, not ethics. Democrats have been in like, if not in love, with liberal Harvard Law School professor Lawrence Tribe for decades. In 1987, for example, they used his little book, God Save This Honorable Court, as a manual for defeating Supreme Court nominee Robert Bork. They huddled with Tribe at a Florida retreat in 2001 to plot strategy for changing the ground rules in fighting President George W. Bush's judicial nominees. Today, however, Democrats are ignoring Traub's advice in their current ethics campaign to control the Supreme Court. Judicial ethics issues fall into categories, financial disclosure, recusal, and off-the-bench activities. 
Democrats and their allies among left-wing groups and in the media want you to believe that the Supreme Court, alone among all federal courts, is out of control because no rules govern the justices' actions in these areas. This is a lie. The federal statute on financial disclosure and the statute on recusal, both enacted in the 1970s, apply to all federal judges, including Supreme Court. The Code of Conduct for United States Judges provides a guidance regarding extrajudicial activities. It is technically applies to the lower federal courts because the Judicial Conference of the United States, which produced it, only has authority there. For decades, however, Supreme Court justices have consulted this code for the very same guidance. They adopted a resolution in 1991 to do so and repeated this commitment just last month when all nine justices signed a statement of ethical principles and practices. Democrats must distract from these facts because they undermine the fiction that the Supreme Court is going ethically rogue. Three bills introduced by Democrats promote this fiction. Senate Bill 359 by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island. Senate Bill 325 by Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut. And Senate Bill 1290 by Senator Angus King, Independent of Maine. Each would require issuance of a Supreme Court Code of Conduct. The White House bill, for example, would require the Supreme Court to issue its own code of conduct. The bill says nothing about what this code must cover, how it would affect the justices' long-standing commitment to follow the other one, or how it would be enforced. To make things even more confusing, under the White House bill, the Supreme Court may change its code, conduct code as it sees fit. Here's where Professor Tribe comes in. In advance of the Senate Judiciary Committee's May 2nd hearing on the Supreme Court ethics, Chairman Richard Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, asked for views from Tribe and former U.S. Circuit Judge J. Michael Ludig, a well-known conservative. They didn't agree on much, but were together in asserting that Congress has no authority to require the Supreme Court to issue an ethics code. Tribe, in fact, was particularly critical, writing that this would be a stark violation of the separation of powers. This echoed the testimony at the hearing of former Attorney General and U.S. District Court Judge Michael Mukasey. Congress should could require that, to, that the Judicial Conference issue a code of conduct for the lower federal courts because Congress created them. The Constitution, however, created the Supreme Court, and therefore, Congress does not have the same authority. The Murphy Bill would also require a co conduct code for Supreme Court justices, but direct that the con Judicial Conference produce it. As the statute creating it provides, the Judicial Conference has authority only over the lower courts. In fact, for purposes of organization and governance, Federal law defines courts as the U.S. Court of Appeals, U.S. District Court, U.S. Court of International Trade, and Territorial Courts. Despite all the hand-wringing and warnings of an ethics apocalypse, however, producing an ethics code for the Supreme Court, even if Congress had authority to require one, is actually not the primary objective of these bills. That was just the first step. 
The real purpose is to create a process for anyone and everyone to file unlimited, even completely baseless, complaints against any justice, accusing them of doing virtually anything the complainer doesn't like. Under the White House bill, for example, complaints could allege that a justice has violated the as-yet-unknown ethics code, the recusal statute, any other applicable provision of federal law, or, and here's the kicker, any conduct that undermines the integrity of the Supreme Court. The bills say nothing about the form such complaints must take, whether there must be any evidence supporting an accusation, or that they must do anything more than state vague subjective accusations. Here's what this would look like. The recusal statute contains a general provision requiring a judge or justice to, quote, disqualify himself in any proceeding in which his impartiality might reasonably be questioned, close quote. Under the White House bill, a complaint does not need to say anything more than that a particular justice's decision not to recuse from a particular case raises a question about that justice's impartiality. That question may exist only in the complainer's head, but here we are. Or consider this scenario. The left has repeatedly argued that how the public should view the Supreme Court's integrity depends on how it decides cases on certain issues. Who hasn't heard this charge against the court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, holding that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion? Or against New York Rifle and Pistol Association v. Buren, striking down a ban on handguns outside the home? White House led a group of Senate Democrats on a friend-of-the-court brief in Brune, asserting that this result would prove that the Supreme Court is not well. The left, after all, has been pushing this politicized narrative for years, and it may just be working. A recent poll found that 62% of Americans say that Supreme Court justices' personal views or politics, rather than legal analysis, often drive their decisions. If that is so, then it's only a small step to view the legitimacy of decisions or the integrity of the accord through that political lens. Tapping into this trend, the White House bill would invite an avalanche of complaints that the Supreme Court's integrity has been undermined solely because its decisions in certain cases do not advance liberal political interests. And the inevitable result will be to further distort the public's understanding of how the Supreme Court decides cases, degrade confidence in the court across the board, and taint decisions that the left doesn't like. But there's more. Under the White House bill, every complaint must be addressed by a judicial investigation panel composed of five of the chief judges of the U.S. Court of Appeals' 13 circuits. These panels, a different one for each complaint, may hold hearings, take sworn testimony, issue subpoenas, and make necessary and appropriate orders. The bill says nothing about how these panels should evaluate complaints, the standards they should apply, or what to do about endless, repetitive, or vague complaints. That's what it says, or doesn't say, 
lower court judges will er, judge the justices who will hear appeals from their court's decisions. The White House bill would have appeals court's judges declare whether the very Supreme Court decisions that they are bound to follow nonetheless determine the Supreme Court's integrity. It's hard to imagine that those appeals court chief judges will have time for their judicial duties once this complaint machine gets revved up. This assault will, by orders of magnitude, dwarf the barrage of complaints against then-Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. In short order, 83 complaints were filed with the court on which he previously sat, and dozens of left-wing groups then urged congressional committees chaired by Democrats at the time, to separately investigate these complaints. It's almost as if that was a coordinated campaign. These Democrat bills have no time limit, no statute of limitations, and apparently apply retroactively. In other words, anyone could file unlimited complaints about virtually anything a justice has ever done. Congress first enacted a recusal statute in 1792, but recusal decisions have always been made by individual judges. Judges take the oath required for federal judicial service individually, pledging that, quote, I will impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon me, close quote. They have never been pit pitted against each other or pushed to second-guess each other's decisions and actions as these bills would do. Judge Mukasey captured what's going on with his campaign to control the Supreme Court. He closed his testimony at the May 2nd Senate Judiciary Committee this way, quote, If the public has a mistaken impression that the integrity of the court has been damaged, the fault for that lies with those who continue to level unfair criticism at the court and its justices. It is impossible to escape the conclusion that the public is being asked to hallucinate misconduct so as to undermine the authority of justices who issue rulings with, the, with which these critics disagree, and thus to undermine the authority of the rulings themselves. Close quote. Now, back over to you, Amy. Thanks, Mike. This next article is from the editorial board of the Washington Post, November 27th, 2023. Supreme Court needs a real ethics code. The justices have rightly responded to public criticism, but the self-policing system they propose doesn't inspire much confidence. Holding judges to high ethical standards is essential to the U.S. legal system. The Supreme Court's recent adoption of an ethics code is an overdue acknowledgement of this reality. But the Court's failure to include any enforceable provisions reduced the codes to a paper tiger. The public shouldn't fall for it. Where ethics are concerned, the High Court has long taken the approach of adopting rules for thee but not for me, requiring all other federal judges to adhere to high standards while exempting itself. Not surprisingly, the justices have exhibited a series of embarrassing ethical lapses, including failing to recuse themselves despite owning stock in companies appearing before them, failing to disclose lavish vacation gifts, 
using public employees to help promote and sell books, and accepting free accommodations for themselves and guests. These breaches have led to public outcry, and rightly so. They strain the court's reputation and reduce public confidence in its authority and independence. At a time when public trust in democratic institutions is low, such failures are all the more intolerable. Yet the court's new code could well breach more public cynicism. By continuing to allow its members to sit as their own judge and jury, a standing invitation for misconduct. As one example, the justices have long claimed that disclosed rules mandated by Congress in 1978 didn't apply to valuable gifts they'd received. Such gamemanship is likely to doom any new self-policing system. Since the court has refused to take enforcement seriously, Congress should do so. The Constitution provides lawmakers with broad latitude in regulating the judicial branch, and the legislation has a long history of imposing requirements on the high court, including mandating recusals in cases where the justice's impartiality could be questioned, and requiring disclosure of their financial holdings and outside income. Because their judicial decisions are not subject to review, the justices seem to think their recusal decisions shouldn't be either. There's no constitutional basis for such a view, and no reason why federal judges who review recusal judgments could not also consider the high courts. At the least, the chief justices should be empowered to review and rule on recusal judgments made by other members, and they on his. Judicial ethics are of paramount importance to democracy. It doesn't speak well of the justices that they've failed to grasp the obligations this imposes on them, and it was an insult to claim, as they did in a patronizing statement, that the new code is merely a matter of clearing up the public's misunderstanding about the court's rules. It is now up to Congress to hold the justices accountable. In drafting legislation, lawmakers should strive for bipartisan consensus, which shouldn't be hard, given the bipartisan nature of the court's ethical breaches. They should also take care not to allow ethical enforcement to become politicalized. But they can't let the court's blindsidedness to its own injustices continue unchecked. And now back to you, Mike. Thank you, Amy. This next article comes from the Heritage Foundation, published in May of last year. Judicial decisions, not judicial ethics, are the real target. Calls for a formal or enforceable code of ethics for the Supreme Court imply that no ethics rules or guidelines already exist, that Congress has the authority to impose such a code, and that a genuine concern about ethics is a real motivation. None of these is true. Every discussion of this issue should begin with the crucial distinction. The Constitution, not Congress, created the Supreme Court. Congress does not have the same authority over the Supreme Court as it does over courts that it has created. Simplistic assertions that the Supreme Court should be treated the same, therefore, are misguided at best, misleading at worst. The federal law requiring recusal in any proceeding in which a judge's impartiality might be reasonably questioned 
or in various specific circumstances applies equally to Supreme Court justices. So do the laws such as the Ethics in Government Act requiring federal officials to disclose many aspects of their finances. Justices file disclosure reports the same way that lower court judges do. In addition, the Supreme Court in 1991 adopted a resolution agreeing to follow the Judicial Conference's regulations regarding limitations on gifts and outside income that apply to lower court judges. What remains is the observation that the Code of Conduct for the United States judges applies to the lower federal courts, but not to the Supreme Court. The Code comes from the Committee on Codes of Conduct of the Judicial Conference of the United States. Congress created the Judicial Conference in 1922 to guide and set policy for the courts that Congress creates. The Supreme Court is not one of them. Even if it did apply to the Supreme Court, the Code states that it is, quote, is designed to provide guidance to judges, close quote, and that many of its restrictions are necessarily cast in general terms and judges may reasonably differ in their interpretation. As it turns out, Supreme Court justices do, in fact, consult the Code for that very guidance in meeting their ethical obligations. In other words, the Code serves the very same function for lower court judges and Supreme Court justices, even if it does not formally apply to the latter. If all people hear is that the Supreme Court has no ethics code, they might easily think that justices can behave however they want. The fact that recusal and financial disclosure laws apply equally to Supreme Court justices that they are on record committing to follow the same limits on gifts and outside income as all other judges, and that they even use the Code of Judicial Conduct in the same way that other federal judges do, changes everything. Hearing the rest of the story, in fact, might make Americans ask why that information is being kept from them by those demanding more restrictions on Supreme Court justices. The answer is that this ethics campaign isn't really about ethics. It's about attempting to control the Supreme Court in order to change its decisions. In 2019, several state Senate Democrats, led by Sheldon Whitehouse, filed a friend-of-the-court brief in a Second Amendment case with these uh, ominous words, quote, The Supreme Court is not well, and the people know it. Perhaps the court can heal itself, particularly on the urgent issue of gun control, close quote. They wrote, before changes are forced upon it. Their message was clear. Change your decisions on such issues or we will change you. White House recently showed what some of those changes might include by introducing a bill to require the Supreme Court to produce its own ethics code. Under this legislation, a Supreme Court justice's recusal decisions in individual cases could be countermanded by his own colleagues. Federal law has required judicial recusal since 1792, but it has never pitted judges against one another. Also under the White House bill, any individual anywhere could file a complaint alleging that a justice of the Supreme Court has violated the code of conduct that the bill requires. 
Each complaint would trigger review by a judicial investigation panel of five randomly chosen chief judges of the U.S. Courts of Appeal, 13 circuits. Those panels could hold hearings, issue subpoenas, and issue orders. Imagine the torrent of complaints certain to be filled against every justice. Alexander Hamilton wrote that the complete independence of the judiciary is peculiarly essential in our system of government. This ethics campaign is a smokescreen, a misdirection driven by those who instead consider that independence an obstacle to be overcome. Back to you, Amy. Thanks, Mike. This next article is from the New York Times, July 20th, 2023, by Carl Hulse. Senate panel approves Supreme Court ethics bill with dim prospects. Republicans accuse Democrats of trying to undermine the court with the measure and vowed to block it from advancing in the Senate, making it highly unlikely to become law. The Senate Judiciary Committee on Thursday approved legislation that would impose strict new ethics rules on justices, moving over fierce objections from Republicans to address a string of revelations about Supreme Court justices taking free luxury trips and receiving other financial benefits from wealthy benefactors. The legislation, which stands little chance of advancing given the strong GOP opposition, would require the Supreme Court to, at a minimum, adopt and adhere to ethics and disclosure rules equivalent to those applied to members of Congress. It would impose new transparency requirements and create a panel of appellate judges to review misconduct complaints against the justices. Democratic members of the committee said the action was necessary because the court had refused to police itself. The legislation will be a crucial first step in restoring confidence in the court after a steady stream of reports of justices' ethical failures. Senator Richard J. Durbin, Democrat of Illinois and chairman of the committee, said of the bill, which passed on a party-line vote. Republicans accused Democrats of trying to destroy the conservative-dominated court and undermine its credibility in a fit of pique over decisions on abortion rights, the environment, civil rights, and federal power that Democrats opposed. They said it had no chance of becoming law. This bill is going nowhere, said Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, the senior Republican on the committee, who said the legislation would fundamentally change the way the court operates. He and other Republicans on the panel said the legislation represented a blatant violation of the Constitution's separation of powers because it would allow lower court judges to cast judgment on justices who review and sometimes reverse lower court decisions. They said lawyers would try to use the new rules to force justices to recuse themselves and bog down the court. I think our founders are rolling over in their graves, said Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. Democrats conceded the legislation could not pass the current Senate, where it would need 60 votes and has no prospects in the Republican-controlled House. But they said the debate would focus attention on ethics issues of the Supreme Court 
and could build momentum for future action by Congress. The ethics rule fight was the latest clash over the court in a committee that has seen increasingly partisan fights over judicial nominations and the confirmation of the justices themselves. We are here because the highest court in the land has the lowest standards of ethics anywhere in the federal government, and justices have exhibited much inappropriate behavior, not least in hapless efforts to excuse their misdeeds, said Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island and the chief author of the bill. This cannot go on. Defending this behavior defends the indefensible. The fight was the latest clash over the court in a committee that has seen increasingly partisan fights over judicial nominations and the confirmation of the justices themselves. Mr. Graham suggested earlier this week that the Democratic decision to pursue the ethics legislation despite the fact that it could not clear Congress was likely to lead to less Republican cooperation on the panel. The Democratic push followed a series of news reports showing that Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Samuel Alito took lavish vacations and private jet trips on the courtesy of billionaires and failed to disclose them. In Justice Thomas's case, a Republican mega-donor, Harlan Crow, also paid for the education of a relative and purchased real estate from the justice. Senator Peter Welsh, a Democrat of Vermont, said his constituents have expressed surprise that justices could receive such benefits, much less fail to disclose them. Disclosure is the bare minimum, and that has to apply to anybody who is a judge, he said. In defending the trips, the two justices said they believed that they did not have to report them because of their social relationships with those picking up the tab and Republicans pointed to a clarification earlier this year to the Code of Ethics that governed judges on federal courts other than the Supreme Court that they must disclose free stays at commercial properties. The Supreme Court is not bound by the Judicial Code of Ethics because it's its special constitutional status. But in a letter to the committee earlier this year, Justice Chief John G. Roberts, Jr., said that the court takes guidance from the ethics codes followed by the lower courts. Republicans said the ethics legislation was the latest installment in a Democratic push to stoke public anger towards the court. They repeatedly note that Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, and the majority leader appeared at a 2020 abortion rights rally outside the Supreme Court, signaling out Justices Neil M. Gorsuch and Brett M. Kavanaugh, and said that they had released the whirlwind and will pay the price if they stripped away abortion rights. The legislation will be a crucial first step in restoring confidence in the court after a steady stream of reports of justices' ethical failures, Senator Richard J. Durbin said. The comments drew a stinging rebuke from Chief Justice Roberts and Mr. Schumer walked them back the next day, saying he meant there would be political consequences. This bill is not about oversight or accountability, said Senator Charles E. Grassley, Republican of Iowa and a former chairman of the Judiciary Committee. It is about harassing and intimidating the Supreme Court. 
but Democrats said they were simply trying to eliminate an ethics cloud hanging over the court and noted that ethics questions had been raised against justices appointed by both Republicans and Democrats. The highest court in the land should be setting an example, said Senator Maisie K. Hirona, Democrat of Hawaii. Before approving the legislation, Democrats on the committee beat back a series of Republican amendments meant to kill it. Despite the committee approval, Mr. Schumer has not committed to bring the ethics legislation to the floor for a showdown, which could hamper or slow other must-passed items. It is unlikely that there will be action anytime soon, since the Senate is trying to advance bipartisan legislation on Pentagon policy and spending, amongst other issues. But Mr. Schumer on Thursday reiterated his backing for the bill. The American people agree that justices who sit on the highest court of the land should be held to equally high ethical standards, he said. And now back to you, Mike. Thanks, Amy. This next article comes from the National Review Online, published in November of last year. Chemerinsky's Confused Criticism of Court's Code of Conduct So many folks are racing to criticize the Supreme Court's new Code of Conduct that I won't try to explore all the criticisms. Given his stature as one of the leading liberal academics of the day, I will focus on Berkeley Law Dean Erwin Chemerinsky's piece in the Los Angeles Times. Chemerinsky's objection is straightforward and commonplace among the critics. The court's new code, he says, quote, is seriously flawed in that it includes no enforcement mechanism, close quote, and, quote, instead continues to leave it to each justice to decide whether to be recused in a particular case, close quote. Chemerinsky's piece is rife with confusions. First, the ill-informed reader would infer from his piece that decisions by lower court judges not to recuse are routinely subject to searching review. But the practical reality is that lower court judges receive a very high degree of virtually complete deference on their decisions to not recuse. Yes, there is a mechanism available for review, at least for federal district judges. A federal statute provides that when a party, quote, makes and files a timely and sufficient affidavit that the judge before whom the matter is pending has a personal bias or prejudice either against him or in favor of any adverse party, another judge shall be assigned, close quote, to decide whether recusal is warranted. For federal appellate judges, I gather that a party could ask the entire Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court to review a federal appellate judge's decisions not to recuse. Well, you might say at least the complaint process for judicial misconduct provides a means to deter or punish wrongful non-recusal. Not so. The rules that govern misconduct complaints expressly forbid complaints about a judge's non-recusal. Quote, Cognizable misconduct does not include an allegation that calls into question the correctness of a judge's ruling, including a failure to recuse. Close quote. So you have no recourse against even flagrant non-recusals, such as the appellate judge who declined to recuse himself 
from a case in which the group his wife led had filed amicus briefs in the district court and which his wife had publicly celebrated the very ruling under review. Second, Chemerinsky asserts that there are, quote, many different approaches, close quote, by which the court could provide a mechanism to enforce a justice's duty to recuse. He sets forth two, but his first is patently unconstitutional, and he won't even embrace his second. On the first, Chemerinsky writes, My colleague Jeremy Fogel, a former federal judge, proposed to the Senate Judiciary Committee in May that the Chief Justice appoint three retired Federal Court of Appeals judges to decide recusal issues. There are many superb retired judges who could be appointed to perform this function. For starters, Chemerinsky badly misstates Fogel's proposal. Here's what Fogel stated in his testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee in May. Quote, because of its unique position in the judicial branch and the need to avoid a review procedure that might compromise its decisional independence or the security of its members, the court could designate a panel of retired judges with deep experience and unquestioned integrity to provide it with confidential advice as to whether an act, omission, or relationship raises an issue under the code, close quote. There is a massive difference between enlisting the confidential advice of a panel of retired judges and authorizing such a panel to decide recusal issues. How would it possibly be constitutional to delegate to a panel of retired judges, that is, individuals no longer holding the judicial office, the authority to decide whether or not a justice takes part in a particular case? Chemerinsky evidently doesn't even recognize the issue, much less suggest an answer to it. Chemerinsky's second alternative is to have recusal issues for a justice decided by the eight other justices. But he immediately raises the danger that the justices might develop a norm of deferring to one another and refusing to meaningfully enforce the code of conduct. Given the current composition of the court, I wonder if Chemerinsky and others on the left would really prefer a process in which five consecutive justices would refuse to accord deference to, say, Justice Kagan if she concludes that she is not obligated to recuse. Third, Chemerinsky alleges that until the issuance of the new Code of Conduct on Monday, the Supreme Court justices, unlike every other judge in the country, were not, quote, bound by an ethics code, close quote. His allegation is wrong in two large respects. First, the federal statute that governs recusal applies to Supreme Court justices as well as lower court judges. Second, far from being binding on lower court judges in any strong sense of that term, the code of conduct for lower court judges says only that it, quote, is designed to provide guidance to judges, close quote. It acknowledges that many of its provisions are necessarily cast in general terms and judges may reasonably differ in their interpretation. Too many critics of the court's new code of conduct are ill-informed about judicial ethics generally and haven't given serious thought to what sort of enforcement mechanism is actually possible. Back over to you, Amy. 
Thanks, Mike. This next article is from Nation.com, November 14th, 2023, by Ellie Mistel. The Supreme Court's new ethics code won't stop the corruption. In surprising news, the Supreme Court announced Monday that for the first time in history, all nine justices have adopted an ethics code, but there's no reason to celebrate just yet or herald the end of public corruption on the Supreme Court. Their self-adopted ethics rules have big holes enough to sail a yacht through. The first and most obvious problem with the court's self-imposed ethics code is that there is no enforcement mechanism. It's still up to the individual justices to decide if they have violated their own ethics rules. There's no third-party adjudication of an ethics violation. There isn't even meaningful peer review, among other justices, of a potential violation. Put simply, it's up to Clarence Thomas to decide whether Clarence Thomas violated Clarence Thomas's rules. The code is more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules, which means effectively that there has been no change. In fact, in a tierce one-paragraph cover letter accompanying the supposed ethics code, the Supreme Court says as much. The justices wrote, For the most part, these rules and principles are not new. The court has long had the equivalent of common law ethics rules. The absence of a code, however, has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the justices of this court, unlike all other jurists in this country, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. To dispel this misunderstanding, we are issuing this code, which largely represents a codification of principles that we have long regarded as governing our conduct. The justices want people to believe that we were simply confused, like we babes in the woods, about the existence of ethical strictures that they held themselves accountable to even as they take free stuff from interested parties. The justices are essentially saying that they've adopted this code so that people, like me, cannot say the Supreme Court is the only court in the country that operates without ethics rules. Beyond that, it's business as usual for them as they go about their graft and corruption. Of course, what I've actually been saying is that the Supreme Court is the only court to operate without statutory ethical rules and commensatory statutory penalties for violating those rules. The adoption of these rules changes nothing on that front. The justices are still the ones policing themselves and expecting everyone else to believe that they are beyond reproach. It might be possible to overlook that key failure of enforcement if the court's self-imposed code of ethics were targeted at the spat of corruption recently revealed by publications like ProPublica. Unfortunately, there is nothing in this 15-page document that would make it unethical for, say, a justice to accept a private luxury vacation from a friend, or for a justice to get a free RV from a friend, or for a justice to have a really good friend by their mother's house. This thing couldn't be more self-serving if it were written by the justice's financial advisor. Which forces the question, why is it here? What possible use is an ethics code that leaves so many opportunities for ethics violations? My guess is that this thing exists for the audience of one, 
Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin. Durbin has been conducting hearings on judicial ethics, hearings that the justices have refused to show up for and offer testimony at, despite polite requests from the chairman. I imagine that the justices think this will take some heat off them, or at the very least give ranking Republican Lindsey Graham something different to scream cry about as he claims that investigations into judicial behavior are politically motivated. There will undoubtedly be Republican politicians and moderate Democrats who claim that the justices have now done enough and should be trusted to self-police the rules they made up for themselves. Nobody should fall for it. The Supreme Court is corrupt precisely because it acknowledges no outside institution to police its corruption. A code that has no enforcement mechanism, no imposed penalties, and merely rubber stamps the justice's own behavior is not an ethical code. That concludes our program for today. We hope you have enjoyed listening to Another Point of View, a program that gives a voice to both sides of the debate on important contemporary issues. This program is a production of the Audio Journal, a proud member of the Massachusetts Audio Information Network. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the article authors and publishers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Audio Journal, its staff, or the volunteer readers. Archived editions of this or any previous program are available on our website, audiojournal.org, or by using the Audio Journal app on your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. Next week on Another Point of View, we'll discuss the issue of biofuels investment and the role, if any, that the government should play to encourage these investments. Should the federal and state governments incentivize and reward investment in biofuel capacity? Our country has run on biofuel for decades, and many American jobs and infrastructures are connected to biofuels. For conservatives, the answer is a clear yes. Biofuels are an intricate part of the nation's overall energy mix, and they contribute to our national energy independence. For progressives, on the other hand, biofuels are an, a finite resource which contributes to pollution and climate change, and government incentives to promote investments is nothing more than corporate welfare. Be sure to tune in again next week to hear both sides of the issue here on Another Point of View. Programming on Audio Journal is supported by the Worcester Memorial Foundation for the Blind, the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and from the generous contributions from listeners like you. Thank you. Our regular program schedule can be found on our website, audiojournal.org, or by requesting a copy in large print or braille by calling the Audio Journal offices at 508-797-1117. Please remember, we need your feedback. What topics should we be addressing? How can we improve the program to better serve you, the listener? Call or email us with any suggestions or general feedback. We want to hear from you. This is Michael Hauck. On behalf of myself and my reading partner, Amy Edelman, thank you for listening. Please stay tuned to Audio Journal. More great programming is coming your way.